Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Today on the podcast, we have the author of a book who I will introduce in a moment, along with the name of his book. But before we get there, I'm actually going to talk about a different author and a different book, uh, and hopefully it will make sense why. Uh, the book I'm going to talk about first is a book called uh, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less uh, by, I think the name is Lydie Klotz. I'm not actually entirely sure how to pronounce his name. Uh, and this book came out earlier this year. Uh, and again, this is not the subject of today's podcast. However, I've been thinking a lot about that book uh, and its premise lately, um, and actually also have a paper coming out soon that borrows some of the ideas from it. And the key inside of that book is that when we want to change something, people almost always focus on what can be added and not what can be taken away. And there are many, many examples in that book of ways in which people just sort of mentally focus on layering on new ideas rather than recognizing that maybe we could achieve something better by removing things that are already in place. And so, you know, as I mentioned, I've been working on this paper and I've been thinking about that a lot lately in the context of, of technology and tech policy and how we so often look to layer on something new, a new technology, a new approach, or all too often a new regulatory regime to fix some perceived problem. But very little effort is ever made towards looking at how did we get into this situation in the first place? And are there ways that we could maybe subtract or remove something that might make the underlying situation better? And so I was thinking about this a lot lately, as I've said, and as I was, uh, Neil Chilson's new book called Getting Out of Control landed on my desk. And Neil, who is the former acting chief technologist at the FTC and currently at Stand Together, has put together this really fascinating book on the concept of emergent order and how sometimes chaos is good <laughs> and how trying to get it under control can actually make things worse, uh, sometimes much, much worse. Uh, and to me, it sort of fit in with this nature of, of recognizing that, some, that sometimes you actually, you know, shouldn't be trying to add more to something or trying to, to control things that are happening out in the world. And that sometimes letting go uh, is the better approach and, and subtracting might be the better approach. And uh, getting out of control is actually a, a really practical book. Uh, in that it it lays out six principles of of what it refers to as the emergent mindset, which is mostly focused on dealing with big policy questions, but also how it can be applied to to life beyond just policy. Uh, and so we have Neil on the podcast today to talk about his book, not the other book, but uh, I thought it was a really useful framing. So Neil, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, so, you know, a lot of your book is is focused on trying to hammer home this idea that we we sort of need uh, a level of humility in, in the face of really complex systems. And, and, you know, a lot of what is happening in the world are these really complex systems. And a lot of the way that people try and deal with them is to sort of simplify them and say, well, here, we can we can solve this with just this one, you know, this one simple trick. Uh, and I, I think it's a really important concept, your idea of this sort of humility around recognizing complexity. But it's also one that I think is is really difficult for people to wrap their heads around. So I, I, I wanted you to start out just, can you make the case for why trying to control a complex system often is not a good idea? Yeah, so um, I, I really like the uh, the intro and I haven't uh, encountered that book, but I do think it does tee off a lot of the, the similar themes in, in my book. Um, I think that part of the anxiety that we're seeing in the policy space, but then just generally around culture, is driven by um, the increased realization that the systems around us are are very complex. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can dig into the difference between complex and complicated. Um, but but as people <laughs> as people see that these things are complex and realize that nobody really has control 
that creates a level of anxiety for humans. I, I think that's just natural. We um, evolutionarily are, uh, our, our, our brains are conditioned for systems that are much less uh, <laughs> complex than, say, global trade. And they right. are used to environments in which we can uh, trust and uh, trust that the people who are, who are um, most likely to affect our lives uh, because they are very like us and because we have a, a, a sort of family relationship with them. Um, that's not that's not true with the uh, you know the producer of some good uh, that came from across the world or um, you know the manufacturer the many many manufacturers that had some hand in the car that I'm driving uh, and so those things feel very out of control to us and um, I think the natural instinct is to impose some sort of structure on that that will help us get back in control. Um, uh, but the problem with complex systems is that they are often serving lots of different purposes. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not just my purpose that a complex system is serving. Uh, it's lots of different purposes. And so if I somehow even manage to impose control on that system in a way that works for me, uh, it may mean the system no longer works for many, many other people. And so to me, that's one of the the biggest problems with seeing something that's complex from my limited point of view and saying, well, I know how to fix this. And it <laughs> might be true that I, I can make some progress towards fixing it for my goals, but that might really ruin it for, for many other people's goals. Um, the classic example that I give in the book is uh, German forestry practices. And this is uh, an example that uh, James C. Scott brought up in his book, Seen Like a State. Uh at some point, uh, the Germans. This is a long time ago. The Germans uh, decided that they, the 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 royalty decided that the goal for the Black Forest was just to produce more lumber, mm-hmm. um, you know. And it was a wild forest. It was you know like the trees weren't planted in any ordered way. And so what they did is they essentially just, in very German uh, 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 <laughs> way, they they made it. It's beautifully aesthetically pleasing rows, all of the same trees all planted around the same time. It was very easy to manage, very easy to log, um, but it destroyed a lot of the other things that people were using the forest for, hunting, um, you know, foraging, the peasants getting, uh, you know, just, um, you know, even firewood out of there. Uh, and in addition, it totally disrupted the ecosystem. And so while in the short run, it produced much, much more wood, much more, much more lumber, uh, you know, it was a monoculture and it was very vulnerable to disease. And in the longer term, uh, the Germans struggled to continue to produce the, uh, that same amount of uh, output. So even there, the function that they were trying to achieve with this complex system um, uh, got undermined. The, the purpose that they were trying to achieve got undermined, in addition to destroying the purposes that it served for many other people. So uh, that's one reason and just one example of how trying to impose control on a complex system can um, undermine even the own purposes that you are you are trying to achieve, let alone some of the purposes that other people might um, have served through a complex system. And, and I, I mean, there, there are so many different historical examples of this. And, and, you know, it feels like they're, you know, and, and this might just be sort of recency bias, but it feels like they're coming fast and furious at this point, like all, all you know, and, and maybe it's just because we're living in a more, you know, complex and interconnected world. Um, but the, you know, part of what strikes me is that people still have, you know, even with all of those examples and even with, you know, all of this complexity that people will even recognize the complexity and yet we still sort of drift to to the the you know this idea of that there is some simple solution or some simple way of controlling it and that there's some you know some way to to get a handle on all of this and like I mean, do you, I, I don't. I'm not asking you to psychoanalyze, you know, eight billion people in the world, but like, why, 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 why does that happen? Well, I think in the policy space, the easiest answer is that you know when we feel out of control, uh, 
we're often quite comfortable handing control over to somebody else to solve the problem. I think that's often mm-hmm. what we look to do, right? Like, we're like, I don't understand how to fix this, but surely there's a group <laughs> of experts who could solve this complicated problem that I don't fully understand. Uh, and if you look at the, you know, the tribal nature of humans, that that kind of made some sense. Like, if you were, mm-hmm. uh, if you were in a small tribe of less than a hundred individuals. The leader of that tribe was actually probably quite a lot like you and was right. actually quite and and the the experiences that they had um, were probably quite a lot like yours uh, in that they had your interests in mind in the same way um, that you might. So if you were in that position, you might be able to you might make similar decisions. And so I think that makes us our instinct is to hand over uh, is often to say, well, let's let the leaders take charge of this because they're very they're probably like me uh, and they probably have the same view as me. And when you're dealing with like small scale problems, that might make sense. But when you're dealing with global problems um, or, uh, you know, economy wide problems or economy wide challenges, um, the leaders are just so far removed often from the key information Mm -hmm. that, uh, that might be able to address the problem that you're experiencing um, that that they probably aren't going to come up with a solution uh, that achieves a lot for you. Or if they do, they that that solution may have a lot of negative side effects for people who have a different problem with the same system. Um, and so right. I so I don't know why. I mean, I, so I think it's somewhat in our evolutionary nature to to want to control. And you know, humans are planning, tool using creatures. So I don't. My book is not. An argument that we should stop as individuals <laughs> making plans, uh, that we should stop trying to use tools or to uh, you know to change the world around us. It's more um, that we should be humble about what we expect when we do execute plans in the world, especially when those plans are affecting uh, big, complex systems that involve many, many other components, uh, especially ones that have their own plans uh you know other humans yeah and and right there is this argument that you know there are times and there are situations in which you know it it does help to have some suggestion of order right you know a a direction in which you should be heading right and and so i think one of the interesting elements and, and this comes across in your book is this idea of of how do you get you know, how do you get that? And and so, like, it is sort of this na- nature of emergent order, which is sort of the, the theme that runs throughout your book, which is that you can get, you can get order. It, it's not, it's not pure chaos, right? It's not just like, you know, wild anarchy, right? That, that we're, we're talking about. It's that, you know, with a bunch of, of individuals moving in a sort of similar direction, it, it forms a kind of order rather than needs needing to be fully structured to the point of, you know, you go here, you go here, you go here, you go here, you go here. It's like, we are all trying to get in this general direction. Here are maybe some guidelines, here are some ideas. And now let's, uh, you know, uh, sort of as individuals or as smaller groups, figure out how do we get there. And I think that's, that's a really important sort of insight that comes out of the book. Yeah. You know, um, one of the metaphors for it, uh, it, there's lots of examples in nature of emergent order. Um, one of them is, you know, the the murmurations of starlings where mm-hmm. uh, you watch them spinning around and you can see patterns. I mean, it's not chaos for sure. Uh, it's very complicated. Um, but the most interesting thing about that is that this is not, it's more than just uh, if everybody makes the decisions on their own, somehow we'll all move in the same direction. What emergent order is about is more than just that sort of pure atomistic uh, idea. It's that when the units, the the birds, the individuals make those decisions, it creates a a pattern and an uh, intelligence across the system that no one individual captures. It's not like all of us have a little piece of the plan and we're doing it. It's mm-hmm. that we are executing a plan and that the emergent property of that system is something 
greater. It's something more than the sum of all the individual actions that are in that. And that can be hard to <laughs> that can be hard to grasp. Yeah. Um, but when you look at something like as complicated as uh, well, as seemingly simple as the you know the production of a, a pencil, right. uh, and you try to break down all the humans that ever played a part in that single you know number two pencil that you're holding. Um, you quickly understand that actually this is this is so complicated. This little device that is physically very simple, the production of it was so complicated that no human has the whole process in their head, right. um, and and that there's something uh, there's something bigger than all of the parts uh, that is that is that is for um, causing that caused this pencil to be created, and so. Um, that type of order, it doesn't look like, you know, the example I use in the book is you can contrast these three things. Like there's chaos, right? Mm-hmm. Watch a bunch of people walk into a stadium. Um, uh, you know, it's it, it's basically impossible to predict like any one person's <laughs> path, right? Right. Uh, um, you might be able to say like sort of approximately like when the game time comes near, like there will be more people in the stadium. Uh, but look at something like at the, at the other end, you have something like, you know, go team placards, like where everybody holds up their their mm-hmm. their color coded thing and it spells out this big message insulting the other side or whatever. <laughs> uh, that's planned order. And then in between, you have something like the wave, uh-huh. uh, which is orderly. Um, but it's executed very much on an individual basis. So each of us kind of had this algorithm that's like, am I excited about the game? Is somebody standing up next to me? Um, is something interesting having on, on the field? We, we all have like a some sort of heuristic about when we should stand up and when we shouldn't. Uh, and each of us executing that individually creates this pattern across the stadium. And there might be people who sort of instigate it, but mm-hmm. once it gets started, they no longer control it. Right. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, so that's an example of emergent order. It's people acting uh, on their own sort of instincts around this or their own pattern, uh, but creating a bigger pattern that no one person has control over. And so those three distinct you know, things, chaos, emergent order, and order, I think we spend a lot of time worrying about chaos and we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to get like perfect order. And I don't think right. we give enough credit to that thing in the middle, which can solve <laughs> really complicated problems uh, called emergent order. You know, it, it, it's it's funny. This also reminded me of um, uh, when I was in business school many decades ago. Um, and, and this is really funny because I, I just spoke about this professor who really influenced me a lot on on a previous podcast just recently, a few weeks ago, which was with, with Brian Fry when we were talking about NFTs and yeah. uh, uh, abundance and scarcity. And and I had this professor, Alan McAdams, um, who you know was very influential on on my thinking about everything in the world. And he was just a really interesting character in in lots of ways. Um, and his his thing that he was teaching was he had this this model of the world which he called the university model um and i was talking about that with brian in the sense of like scarcity and abundance um but there was this other element to it which i don't think i've talked about in 25 years you know uh which really fits in with with what you're saying as well which was and and i had mentioned like it was weird because the class that i took the first class i took with him um I ended up taking a few, but the first class I took was actually like a management consulting class. And and it did not feel like a management consulting class. And he was really just teaching this model that he wanted everyone to go out into management consulting and, and spread on the world. But it really was a very similar view. And, and sort of the key aspect to it, and this is a really, really simplified version of it, right? I don't need to get too deep in the weeds on it, was that, you know, as a, like, a company and a corporate structure, the most important thing is to have an overarching goal, a sort of North Star that your company is working towards. But then instead of doing completely top-down organization to make that happen, just empower 
the different parts of the company and the different individuals in the company for how are we getting towards that north star north star and how you know the individual decisions and the individual projects and the 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 tactics that you're taking along the way how are they getting us in that direction and then sort of letting that sort of boil up from the bottom and obviously that's influenced a lot of my thinking on on a whole bunch of things around how you know the internet should work and how a bunch of other policies should work um but you know, I'm I'm thinking about it now, and then reading your book, it was like, you know, this is this is the same thing. Like, you know, it's not not identical, oh, but yeah, it, yeah, you, yeah. you know, it's got a lot of similarities to this idea of like, you know, recognizing that that like a, a sort of bottom up approach effectively can be really really effective. And this is you know, you know, this professor professor in in the mid 1990s was talking about things like you know open source. Uh, technology and like Linux and how, you know, these things could could really make a difference, even though, you know, it wasn't being built by some giant company with a top down directive of this is what we're doing. We're just trying to we have a whole bunch of people working on these projects and moving this direction and amazing things happen. And we see that all the time. And yet, you know, we still don't seem to recognize like that's that that's actually how a lot of things work and complex systems can create you know, and, and all these people sort of, you know, doing their own part can create things that are really amazing and complex and useful. And, and it's, you know, it's interesting to me to see it come up again and again, and yet, you know, still feel like so few people understand how that works out. Yeah. You know, in some ways we're still very much in an industrial age frame for how we think about systems and if you look, and that's definitely true in the policy space. I mean, uh, the 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 idea that came out of the industrial revolution around um, understanding some very, ultimately in in many ways, some very simple rules that are universal uh, about physics, and how we, you might be able to use those to you know develop new solutions. People very they saw the all the advancement that happened in the industrial age and they they took that metaphor and they were like, you know what? I bet that's true about humans and human <laughs> systems too. So if we just understand some fundamental rules, we can design these systems from the top and they'll work like an assembly line, essentially, or right. like a steam engine. And I think what we've what we're increasingly learning is that that metaphor is really wrong. Yes. Um, that that humanity is much more like I mean, it's 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 a biological system. It's a it's an ecosystem. It's it's the type of systems that I think um, often we recognize are s- full of all these different components. Where if we interfere with them, we can't predict the results. And and you know, my I I think business schools have very much. Uh, yeah, maybe your professor. I, it sounds like your <laughs> professor is sort of on the cutting edge of this, but um, you know, there was a time at which you know. Business management was all about top-down control yeah. and measuring success and and judging it from the top and and you know splitting up tasks and assigning them very precisely to people and then measuring how fast they did them and using that feedback loop. Um, but as we've moved into more complicated fields, I you know that can work for us uh, building a car. It doesn't work nearly as well for building software uh, or any sort of complex system. And so what you end up having is I think the business schools, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, um, have started to take a different vision of what leadership looks like uh, within an, an organization. And even places as hierarchical as the army, I think, have done mm-hmm. that as well and started to say, like, actually, it doesn't make a ton of sense uh, for the commander, the general, to get all of the information about what's happening in the field, even if it's technically feasible. And, and we should... We should talk about that uh, that particular part of it. Uh, how does technology fit into all this? But um, even if it's technically feasible for you know the special ops guy to report to uh, you know the general about what's happening right now, um, it probably doesn't make a ton of sense, right? He's probably right. not going to have any extra information um, that's going to be ap- applicable to what they do, uh, and so uh, let's not add an extra bottleneck to the decision making that they're doing. And I think that's 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 very true in lots of other organizations as well. Um, it does sort of beg the question of why do we have organizations then? And <laughs> yes. and 
I, you know, I think early on in my uh, awakening into the policy space, you know, I come from a computer science background. I wasn't inherently like I, I did not, I, I, you know, policy was not a thing that I was really engaged with until maybe like late grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think early on in that evolution, it's sort of easy to take this very atomistic, individualistic approach that says, look, let's just maximize the individual's freedom uh, and that and that, that individuals are the, the primary way we should measure success, like the freedom of an individual. And I think that often gets stereotyped as the sort of classical uh, libertarian view. Um, uh, I think, you know, what becomes what's become obvious to me is that we are individuals, but we operate in these complex systems which clearly influence us and which we clearly can have an influence on. And that feedback loop is not really under our control uh, always, but but we do have a responsibility to try to make those structures better. And um, and so structures uh, like corporations or governments they have they serve a function mm-hmm. and. Uh, part of the responsibility of the people who participate in them is to help them help their form fit that function and to help the, them to be able to execute that function well. And that's not a design thing. Institutions themselves are very emergent systems, even if I, anybody who's worked at a large organization can tell you about like the culture of a corporation, yep. right? Uh, uh, and the changes that can happen just from somebody like mucking around with the corporate structure, like how, <laughs> how it can have really different effects than anybody intended. And so uh, all of that's to say, uh, I, I think your, your professor was very right that uh, we should be somewhat skeptical about how we design things from the top. That doesn't leave leaders free to do nothing, um, right. but it means that they should be pretty humble about what they can actually achieve from a design perspective at the top. And that, Often their goal should be to set the direction, um, to provide an example often of what good uh, behavior and achievement looks like, and to empower their employees uh, to solve the problems that they see uh, to move the, the organization towards that North Star. Um, so. I, I want to look up your professor and uh, uh, and read some more of his stuff. So yeah, yeah, I'll sh- I'll share some of the stuff. <laughs> Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, but but mm-hmm. uh, there's there's a lot of stuff that that he he put together. Unfortunately, like I did go searching for for some of it recently, and I couldn't find a lot of a lot of the things that you know. There's nothing that I can find on on his whole hmm. like university model. Uh, setup, which which disappoints me, but I, I should go through some old boxes, and I might I might have some some stuff. Um, so so what you just said brought up like a dozen different questions in my head, sure. or a dozen different directions to go in. So I'm sort of debating which 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 one to to, to hit on because because I think they're all interesting, um, and I do want to discuss at least a few of them in the time that we have. Um, so one one element is that it's funny because some of what you were saying took me back to my undergrad it's like you've this has all been a nostalgia <laughs> college uh, podcast but you know my, my undergrad degree which doesn't come up very often was was in industrial and labor relations of all things hmm. <laughs> uh, and you know one of the things that we studied was this concept of taylorism which i don't know how familiar yep. you are with that but that was this idea of like you know in in you know a hundred years ago kind of studying every move that people in a factory were making and trying to perfect it so that you could, you know, become the most efficient factory in, in the world. Um, and it was a mess. I mean, it failed for, for the very reasons that you're talking about. It's funny now because we're starting to seeing at times like reemergence of this idea or incredibly to me, people who think that like Taylorism was the right approach and that was successful. But when you look at the reality, it was anything but that. And it was like, you know, this idea that you could make humans perfectly efficient by determining like what is the the shortest distance they should walk and what movement should they how should they be lifting their arm and you know what what you know all of that kind of stuff doesn't work in reality because you're dealing with biological systems you know they're not machines they're not robots um and and so much of the taylorism approach didn't take that into account and so i think it's it's really interesting to sort of think about that and to look at at that attempt as as well uh and 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 how that comes in but 
moving past that, you know, the, you know, one of the other things that that struck me in in your discussion of like, you know, why do we have corporations and how does this work? You know, I don't I don't know how much attention you've been paying lately. And again, this is partly because of all the research I've been doing on this stuff. Like the the whole Web three approach to to DAOs and these yep. distributed autonomous organizations, which is really really fascinating to me. Um, and you know, for all the talk right now of like NFTs and stuff, I think the sort of thing underlying a lot of it that gets very little attention is this idea of of DAOs and yep. and how they're kind of an example of what you're talking about of the this sort of you know very emergent order among like not a, not a corporation, but a bunch of people coming together for a single purpose and, and like figuring out the best way to get there. How, yeah. how much have you looked into that space? Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm fascinated with all the Web three stuff, and I think uh, DAOs have a lot of potential. You know, I, I work in the philanthropic space now. Uh, I think there's even some huge potential to disrupt yeah. how philanthropy works. I mean, there was a recent example, uh, very sort of inside baseball in the crypto game, but uh, uh, of a DAO that raised a bunch of money using NFTs and voted uh, to give it to a, a certain crypto. Yep. Uh, lobbying organization in DC to help defend uh, you know some of the policies that they supported, and I think they did like four million dollars in like an hour or something. It's just yeah. like pretty amazing when you think about a decentralized decision making process. Um, so uh, you know, I talk a little bit in the book about you know the Kosian reason for firms, right? Like mm-hmm. for corporations, which is essentially to reduce uh, transaction costs. When you think yep. of a Corporation, it is. Uh, I, I don't. I, I can't. I can't. I can't remember who said it, but they're sort of like little islands of command and control mm-hmm. within the ocean of the marketplace. Even that way oversimplifies it because, as we already <laughs> talked about, within a uh, an organization, there's lots of feedback loops, lots of complex systems, lots of human relations that can't be really captured in the org chart. And so, uh, corporations themselves are complex systems, but there is more of an element of hierarchy within a, a corporation. And the reason is because it's more efficient in some ways to do certain things that way rather than using market signals. Um, mm-hmm. So rather than having a bunch of contractors, you might have a single organization where you have somebody right. kind of setting the rules. Uh, that's As technology has changed transaction costs, I think it's already happened that we have lots of decentralization. I think we're seeing this more from the work from home stuff. We having we're having increased decentralization because there's no longer the transaction cost barrier to two people working something out or that transa- that barrier is lower. Something mm-hmm. like DAOs or uh, blockchain technologies I think lower that transaction cost even more so that what that means is you can now do complicated um, big scale things that require lots of individuals without having to have a, a hierarchical organization. Um, and that uh, is very interesting. And it could transform, yes. I think, really uh, lots of fields. And so um, I'm very interested in that particular application of Web3 technology. I think it has a lot of potential. I didn't talk about, weirdly, I didn't talk about uh, cryptocurrency or blockchain or anything in my book, Um, uh, even though it is a very, very natural application. Had I had more of a marketing mindset, perhaps I would have because, uh, but, but I didn't, Um, uh, because it is a very natural application of uh, emergent systems, uh, the potential and the power of emergent order uh, without, you know, to achieve purposes without design without detailed design yeah. of how uh, of how so yeah it, 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 it is really interesting and this is this is you know um i'm working on a few papers on on this subject right now too and and the thing that you know i'm, I'm sort of really kind of wrapping my head around lately and fits in with exactly what you said is this idea of like the reduction of friction right and, and the the friction being the transaction costs yep. um and and there are some really amazing examples and it's still really, really early. And there are lots of other associated problems, you know, with, with the sort of cryptocurrency world, which, you know, I'm I'm not trying to downplay or ignore, 
But you know, when it works, this reduction of friction, the ability to have a bunch of people accomplish things is really, really amazing and really, really, really interesting. Um, yeah. So to, to shift gears a little bit, and, and you mentioned this a little bit, but I, I did want to make sure we got it in there. You know, within the book, you sort of lay out these principles for, for people trying to, to understand this stuff. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's, that's a really important part of the book that, that we should get across to the listeners who maybe haven't read it. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I think the the six principles that uh, you mentioned are aimed. They're they're practical applications of the the idea of emergent order, and I tried to make them universal enough that they could apply to decision makers in policy space. But then also, you know, when you're trying to decide like how to build better habits in your life, I'm not I'm not sure I hit that perfectly. Um, I will say the the part of the book that's about um, personal change and uh, and your interactions in the community was really fun for me to write, but it was mm-hmm. a space I was I'm less uh, intimately familiar with than <laughs> than the the policy space, and so um, so I hopefully I hit some some on that, but uh, you know I, I don't want to run through all six of them. You already touched on humility, the mm-hmm. the idea of uh, humility. Um, uh, I think we've already talked a lot about the ideas around expecting complicated results, mm-hmm. um, even from when you intervene in a complicated system um, and not trying to control things that you cannot. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about the, you know, the ideas around constraints mm-hmm. and uh, around how to make the world better by making yourself better. Um, uh, you know, the... The idea of constraints, again, it gets back to that theme I was talking about where it, it seems in some ways that the stereotype is that, you know, we just want maximum freedom for individuals. But I think we all know, and this is uh, this goes back to the book that you inter- introduced at the very beginning, um, the, the, the idea around less, uh, that c- having constraints is actually a very valuable yeah. Thing in in uh, in being able to make progress uh, in, on any project, and so if I had to spend every waking moment of my day like totally free about what I was going to do next, um, I would waste a lot of time like worrying <laughs> whether or not I was doing the right thing next. And so, you know, doing something like having a, a habitual set of things that you do in the morning, or you know, a set pattern that you do, it, it feels constraint. It is a constraint. It's mm-hmm. a habit. Um, but it can help free up the parts of your life that you want to be free, freer uh, for creativity or productivity or things like that. And so many people are searching for uh, new systems to help them with this. Often they're searching for very complicated <laughs> solutions because they think the um, the solution should be as complicated as the you know the problem that they're dealing with. Uh, but often there's just some very simple solutions. Um, that can help a lot with dealing with a complex system. And so uh, so choosing constraints, choosing the habits that you engage in day in day, but also um, what I would call sort of group habits, which are uh, maybe another name for institutions, uh, you know the 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 institutions that you participate in, um, I think is a really underrated way to help um, both, improve yourself, but also, uh, again, as we've already mentioned, like achieving big things is very, it's, it's very rare to be able to achieve big things as a pure individual. I almost always, if you're going to achieve something that's big and impactful to a lot of people, it's going to involve bringing a lot of other people along and, and working with them. And, um, and the best way to do that is, in institutions. Now, as we just talked about, institutions might be changing because of some technology, but it's still going to be this collaborative effort around other people. And so choosing those institutions that you participate in, um, I think is really important. And finding uh, your role within the, in them is, uh, I think, very important. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't have, uh, it, it really, you know, what institutions you choose will really depend on what you're trying to accomplish, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have general principles for that because I don't have general <laughs> designs for what I think everybody should be trying to accomplish. Um, 
Uh, but I, I do think uh, people don't yet don't give enough credit to the idea that joining together with other people is a key part of being able to accomplish something meaningful uh, as humans and and that choosing those people yeah you know, I guess there's you know the sayings that probably everybody's moms said like you know you you are the people that you hang out with or <laughs> you're the sum I think the business version of that is you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with Um <laughs> I, those have an element of truth to them, and right. uh, and and it's. I'm probably not saying anything new to to say, choose your friends wisely, right? Like it's essentially <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, uh, and but I but I do think that people forget that as a as a means to improving yourself and to improving the world. Uh, a lot of it is finding what institutions you're embedding yourself into. So, uh, you know, I could talk a, a lot about the other uh, principles in there. But I would love to talk a little bit about, you know, I do mention you in the book. So why don't we talk about that uh, a little bit as an example of, of um, uh, you know, of one particular potential way that emergent order could help or that freeing up a system uh, right. to uh, uh, enable emergent order could help solve some very difficult problems. Um, uh I, this is one of my case studies in the book is around content moderation mm-hmm. and and you have a, a great paper which I'm sure all your listeners are uh, familiar with um, around you know having protocols not platforms um, so let me turn this interview around a little bit <laughs> <laughs> talk a little talk a little bit about that and then let's dig into then let's dig into uh, uh, yeah. why that's an emergent order principle. Yeah, sure. I mean, and so, yes, anyone who's listening to this has probably heard me drone on long enough about about protocols, not platforms. But, um, you know, and I was going to say, like, you know, we, we should at least discuss this, the, the idea around, like, you know, content moderation, because this podcast, it's like a requirement. We must talk about it <laughs> every episode in some way or another. But, you know, but yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting because, like, the whole concept, you know, a lot of the concept between... Uh, protocols not platforms actually did go back to uh, you know a, a much earlier thought that I'd had about sort of the way the internet worked and that there was this sort of pendulum between decentralization and centralization uh, and and you know just watching how the internet changed from like you know the earliest times from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s to the 90s um, you saw this sort of pendulum between you know, well, everything is on like a mainframe and you just kind of log in from the edge to like client server computing to all of this stuff. And, and you sort of kept seeing it. And it, it feels like, you know, a part of part of the excitement about the web was that it was supposed to be this sort of decentralized system. And yet where we are now is that it it has gotten a lot more centralized. That's, you know, there are still, you know, decentralized parts of it, but it's become more and more centralized. And so, a lot of the thinking behind the protocols not platforms paper was like, wait, I, th- I feel like we've lost some of those cool advantages of the promise of the early web of a much more decentralized, permissionless setup where anyone can jump on and have as much power as the next guy. And yet, you know, that's not really where we are today. And there are reasons why, and I address that in the paper and sort of explore, you know, what were the benefits of of getting this more centralized, these more centralized systems out there and why so many people have flocked to them, which is, you know, just better, better service. And it takes away some of the, the mental processes and, and the transaction costs. Um, but, you know, do we have an opportunity to shift that pendulum back a little bit and bring back some of the advantages of the more decentralized distributed systems? Um, and, in in the hopes and and hopefully stated with with enough humility <laughs> that that it might solve some of the the problems that we perceive today about you know these these massive companies and and their control over content moderation so i i, I agree i mean yeah. i do think it is an, an interesting example of you know hoping for a, a more emergent order kind of setup yeah, it's it's really fascinating. The history of the internet is a is a good example. Uh, you know, in complex systems, uh, uh, complex system scientists talk about boundaries and signals, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have, uh, you know, your body is made up of cells, which are your body is a boundary, right? But like, 
within that, there's these other elements, cells that have a boundary, but they have signals that cross them. Um, and there's organs and those have a boundary and, and signals cross them too. And uh, if you think about the internet, um, it used to be much more, there used to be lots more cells, right? Like it used to be lots more single cell organisms and now it's like much more big celled, organ, multi-celled organisms mm-hmm. that have lots of, you know, organ organs within them. And, and so there's that hierarchy that's come and the question is, can we get the same level of signals? Uh, can we get the same levels of communication? Can we get the same levels of function from a more decentralized? And what, when you're talking about protocols, you're talking about signals, right? Yep. Um, uh, and and you're and in some sense, the question is: Can we get the same level of sophistication and services from uh, a lot more smaller organisms? Organisms communicating more frequently as compared to sort of more complex single organisms that are uh, communicating less frequently outside of their their particular boundaries. And uh, complex systems are full of these types of challenges, and each of them have their own benefits, right? Your paper does a good job, I think, talking about that. Um, Kevin Kelly has a great book called Out of Control, which my title obviously plays off of, um, where he talks about... uh, the characteristics of emergent systems. He doesn't call them emergent systems. He has another name for them. Uh, but, uh, but one of the things he points out is that they are ho- often highly inefficient um, to the designer's mind. Right? They look extremely redundant. Like you have hundreds and hundreds of units that do the same thing. So if you think of an ant hill, for example, like right, if you smash like dozens of ants, you're not causing anything critical to the the anthill right like the anthill can absorb that it's very robust to change conditions and that's because it's so redundant and in many ways the old internet was very much like that um and maybe it's less so now you know facebook has an outage like everybody's talking about it you know uh and and so um but there's there's obvious trade-offs there, right? Like it can be, it looks way less efficient. And so you might look at a system that's emergent and be like, having seen how it solves a problem, you might be like, well, I can make that more efficient. Right. And I think that's what that's the history of technology, right? Like you yep. look at a system where that sort of emerged and people are like, I can solve this problem more efficiently by designing something that I've learned from the emergent system. Yep. But then that has a problem, that has other problems. And so that that flood back and forth, I think, is um, it's very productive. I think it's my concern is in the policy. Like bring this back to policy. That pendulum swinging back and forth um, uh, freezes most frequently when you have an outside force stepping in right. uh, to to say, "Hey, no, this is how we're going to do it now, and we're not going to, yeah. and we're and we're going to do it because we're solving the problem that we see." Um, again, forgetting that, especially for a general purpose system like the internet, it's solving lots of different people's problems, um, to varying degrees. And, and that when you try to solve just one set of people's problems, um, you're going to create a a bunch of problems for other people. And content moderation is just such a good example of that. As I'm sure, uh, (laughs) um, readers of your, 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 uh, your blog and listeners to your podcast are, are well aware. Yeah, yeah. I mean, over and over again, we've tried to make the point that so many of these proposals, you know, are, are one, they're treating the internet as if it is Facebook and, and only Facebook or, you know, maybe the, the big four internet companies. Um, and they don't realize that what they're doing is locking in those companies because you're, you're putting in place these structures to solve the problems that you think they have. And you don't realize that you're basically then you know, you're, you're halting that, that pendulum swinging and you're halting these, the ways in which the, these more emergent, uh, approaches, whether it's through cryptocurrency or DAOs or, or just, you know, individual startups popping up and, and doing something different and taking a different approach and, and how the users do it. Um, and, and so I, I definitely do worry <laughs> about the, the, the state of, of internet policy today and, and how, you know, I do think your your book, while it's not specifically about that, it does touch on it. Um, yeah. 
I think it is a really important point, and I do wish that that so many of the people sort of rushing in to to come up with whatever whatever new bill this week <laughs> who would recognize the the potential pitfalls of what they're what they're often doing. Yeah, if I could have if you know, I would consider my book a success uh, if readers take away like a just a gut level understanding that um, complex systems aren't really under any one person's control. And that can be okay. In fact, in many cases, it can be quite beneficial. Um, and that therefore we should be quite humble about like bringing our own detailed designs to, to such <laughs> systems to solve problems. Um, you mean we can't just fix fix the world by telling Mark Zuckerberg how, how, to, how to run Facebook? <laughs> Strange, strangely enough, I mean, uh, one of the points I think people don't appreciate quite enough is how even even that all leaders essentially influence and that rather than control. I mean, there's yeah. some element of control, but even the most dictatorial uh, you know person in uh, uh, you know in some authoritarian state has a limit to what he can do. Uh, to make other people do something and that much of his power comes from other people essentially believing <laughs> right believing or or uh, um, adopting the the mindset that that this person is in charge and so feedback loops affect everybody even dictators um, uh, uh, and there's there's limits to control even in those types of situations and so um, I don't know that I was, maybe I was unintentionally uh, making a parallel between Mark Zuckerberg and a dictator, uh, but, <laughs> but, um, but there are, there are, if there's limits to, you know, uh, the pole pots of the world, uh, yeah. what they can accomplish with the complex systems that they're dealing with, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta, uh, you gotta think it's, it's not going to be possible for Mark Zuckerberg to change yeah. the world, um, even if we're trying to force them to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I mean, I, you know, I think there's an underlying point there too, which is that, you know, even if, even if Mark Zuckerberg could try to, to do things or is instructed to do things, however you want to put it, you know, all of the billions of people who are using Facebook have their own ideas and, and they yep. want to use these services in certain ways. And it amazes me, like every time there's an attempt to like crack down on, on some aspect of these services, you see it pop up somewhere else. You know, I, I think, you know, there was an example um, that I'd meant to write about, but I don't think I ever did of like, you know, schools blocking, uh, you know, like, Facebook Messenger or something saying like, oh, you know, the kids were just talking to each other and but they were they were using like Google Docs and the kids immediately figured out how to use Google Docs chat to do the same thing that they were blocked from doing in Messenger. It's like people are going to find a way to do the things that they want to do. You can try and influence that. But like trying to just like step in and say, we have to shut this down doesn't work. You know, you have people who have their own desires and their own their own goals and they will figure out a way. (laughs) And so it's it's you know, it's it's really interesting. Anyways, uh, I, I have taken enough of your time, but the the, the book again is called uh, "Getting Out of Control." Uh, it is, um, it is, uh, it's a good read. I, I highly recommend it. Um, and it's, it's pretty short too. It's actually not not a not that long of a book. Yeah, two hundred um, something pages, two hundred and forty pages, two hundred fifty. Yeah, yeah. Like um, but it's it's uh, you know it's a it's a really enjoyable and and fun read, and it touches on a whole bunch of these things, and and hopefully, as it did with me, inspires a lot of thinking about all these other things that are happening in the world. So, uh, check it out. And Neil, thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great conversation. And thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and dig up the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel.